Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a question and answer episode of the show. You guys sent so many awesome questions in, both on Twitter and to the email address. Anna Koppelman and Sam Koppelman are here to help ask those questions and to talk them through. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I feel a sense of optimism for the first time in a long time, as it appears there's going to be a peaceful transfer of power. And let's talk about all the other stuff that we love to talk about on here together um, as we move toward the new year. Anna, do you want to start us off uh, with a question? You can uh, say who the question's from if you want. Yeah, so I was thinking in the spirit of Thanksgiving and all of us being together to start with some questions about family. Uh, Zeki Smith asks, how have you consumed stories with your kids over time, reading aloud at the table or at bedtime, or watching movies slash listening to songs together, etc.? And do you give them your analysis of a piece of pop culture or let them figure out its merits on their own? Well, we're with the perfect group here to answer this question. I love that question. I don't think Amy and I, and please both of you, if I say anything that feels not true, answer it. I don't, I don't think we were super prescriptive in the way we would talk about stuff that we saw, but yes, like I can, like if I use one film as an example, like the movie Eighth Grade, which we all went to see together when you guys were a little older because we felt like it echoed certain aspects of events that might have, <laughs> might have happened to one of, one of us. I remember sitting up like all night and all talking about it together, but it wasn't like we were leading that in, in his bed, in his bedroom. We all sat mm. up all night long, the four of us. And we literally talked about it till like three 30 in the morning. But I, and, and I think that's typical of the way we all experience stuff, whether it was records, books. I think the one thing we did was we, and I don't give much parenting advice, but one thing that we always did was have that stuff available. There were books everywhere in our apartment. There was always music playing. One thing we always said if we had money that everyone could spend it on was those things. And we didn't do book clubs or we weren't like everyone read a book at the same time. Though Amy would often read the books you guys were reading uh, for school to talk about them. And no books were off limit. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah, there was nothing that we couldn't read because it was inappropriate, except briefly forever by Judy Bloom was up for debate. But, <laughs> <laughs> but besides that, like we could read whatever we wanted. Yeah, it's true. I, you definitely let us watch south park at you know eight nine years old um and didn't put any guardrails around any of that um and i do think you let us figure stuff out you know on their merits except we couldn't like the doors and we had to like the godfather or the chili peppers right well i don't want to say that we aren't allowed to like the chili peppers because two old friends of mine manage the chili peppers And Flea is great. But yes, if we're being honest, we were not a Chili Peppers family and we're not a Doors family. But beyond those things... I kind of like the Doors. Okay. This is, we're going to talk about this here. You're going to have to go to your room. Uh, no. Um, what I love about the spirit of the question is this idea of how to share cultural touchstones, things that matter to you with your kids. And I think one of the things we wanted to do, just to answer this super seriously, is when the kids... When you guys had enthusiasms... It would go in that direction too. Mm. So uh, if there was a band, you know, Anna, you turned me on to Casey Musgraves, as I've talked about on the podcast. Right. You recognized her songwriting before her first album came out. And then you and I spent the 
day listening to that record together. Mm -hmm. And Sammy, we had a million of those things too, where it goes in that direction also, where, where we'll all send each other that stuff. Although I will say also, <clears throat> lately, when I send TikToks around, sometimes they just go uncommented upon. That's true. All right, next question. How much have you thought about, if at all, what your life would be like if you hadn't slept through that Motley Crue party? This was from Van Baird. Okay, so for people who don't know, you can find the story online about the crew, uh, Motley Crue and me. There was a, uh, a night when I was in the record business and I was around Motley Crue where they invited me to come back to the studio late at night because they were inviting um, many, many, many women who danced at the strip clubs in Vancouver to celebrate their manager's birthday. And it was just going to be the crew, the manager, and me. I was 22 or 23 years old. 22 years old, I think. And I went home to shower because I'd been awake a lot that week. And then I, I fell asleep and I missed the event. And, uh, you know, when you're 22 years old and you're sort of around Motley Crue and that sort of thing is going to happen, uh, it, it's, it's the kind of thing a lot of people go into being around that business for. And the honest, sappy answer is, like, I, like as I said at the end of that piece, in my 20s, maybe I thought about it, but I, I, um, I have these two kids sitting next to me and I don't regret any of it. No regrets. Okay, I have two uh, questions on maybe your favorite topic. Uh, morning pages. So day 35 of morning pages, thanks to your recommendation and its magic. Have you figured out why? And does the why even matter? And does the magic last? Amazing stuff. Thank you. And then a follow-up question. Well, that first one is from uh, Soleil uh, SNCO. And then a follow-up question, which is, I know you're big on morning pages, but is there any additional or different prep you do when you're writing songs? So why do the morning pages work? Well, I had Julia Cameron on here a few weeks ago and, and my kids are laughing about this because I, I try to prod them. Both of them are very good writers. Um, one of them's a professional writer, the other can be if she wants to be and um, has been, actually is, has been paid to write. She's a professional writer too. Uh, well, you have been paid to write. Can I this uh, what? <laughs> can I edit this part out? No, we're not going to edit this part out. All right. But, uh, the morning pages did allow me to become a writer. And yeah, I've thought a lot about why they work. And part of it is, and Julia Cameron's thought a lot about it and she writes about it in The Artist's Way and I would suggest you read that book because she's who figured this out. For me, it gets you, I often say it tips the stuff that's in your subconscious onto the page, opening up your mind for whatever other thoughts uh, and feelings you have. When you wake up and before kind of doing anything else, you just let your pen move across the page and write these three pages. You, I end up discovering myself. I end up discovering over a period of time what matters to me, what I'm thinking about, what I want to change. So it has this very profound effect in that way. But, but the greater effect I think it has is it frees me up to do creative work. It I have written something, I have done something, I have put something on a page and it it just turns the volume down on the kind of perfectionism that isn't helpful. And it allows you to produce uh, work, which for me has been a lifelong battle. As someone who was a blocked writer until I was 30 
and someone who has ADHD and has struggled with that, morning pages are the single best tool I've ever found to uh, transcend those things and be able to produce work on a daily basis. I was going to say, I have another question on like what to do when you're blocked or you're wanting to start something at an age that you think is too far from when you should start. So Erica Bieto asks, when did you start learning to play guitar? And what's your best advice for someone just beginning at 50 years old? Oh, that's so fun. Um, first of all, great. Go play guitar. It's like never been easier to learn guitar. First of all, learning anything in the beginning is slow and annoying. And you feel like you're never going to make progress, I think. I played very poor. I played, I was bad at guitar. I'm still not a good guitar player, but I was really bad at it for a long time. I kind of knew how to play a little. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I, Amy said, let's make sure we bring your guitar uh, out to, to where we're going to go. And we left the city for a couple weeks and just the two of us. And uh, having the guitar with me gave me something to really do with my anxiety or with the uncertainty of everything that was going on. I learned to play a couple of songs by um, watching Marty Guitar, who's this Marty Schwartz, Marty Guitar on YouTube. You, he and, uh, and I just didn't care if the progress was slow. And so I kept practicing an hour a day maybe. I kept playing, learning just new songs or adding new little bits. And then it stopped being about like just learning the guitar. And then I went months of just uh, just playing songs, like uh, messing around with chords, going on YouTube and, and searching for songs I wanted or getting an app that has free apps that, that give you um, chords for all these different songs. And then recently I started taking lessons again because I, I got to a place where, where as a songwriter, I want to... I want more control over the guitar. I want to understand more how different parts of the fretboard work, uh, how different chord groupings can go together. And so I started taking lessons again once a week on Zoom. You can find a guitar teacher for uh, 20 bucks an hour. You could do that once a week. Um, you could also pay a lot more than that if you want to. I'm taking lessons from an amazing guy named Michael O'Connor. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. He's a great songwriter and a wonderful guitar teacher, and he's not prohibitively expensive. And um, and he's been a great help to me on guitar. Davis A. Finley asked, how has the hobby of songwriting added value to your life, creative or otherwise? In so many ways. And I, I'd say, when I say songwriting for me, it can be whatever the thing is for you. But to do something that is trying to tap into the part of yourself that's most alive when it has no stakes professionally is really something that makes you feel free. And if you can carve out the time, and I, I, I have to say, like, I am able to carve out the time now. Um, I'm someone is lucky enough that I'm in a job where I'm, I'm still getting paid, even though I'm working at home. So if you're somebody who doesn't have the time, I completely understand that and this doesn't apply. Um, but I, I, I'm very grateful to be in the, this situation. And uh, it allows me to be purely creative. But, but I don't say some people are like, uh, what I like about songwriting or anything that has a discipline, it could be writing haikus, is 
the structure that you know is there requires a kind of rigor. And for me, that structure, the rigor required, you have to decide, is this song A, B, A, B, C, B? Is the song A, A, B, A, A, B? Like knowing, thinking about the structure of the song, understanding that meter comes into play, all that stuff makes it that it's not just like, uh, I never was somebody who just like, hey, give me a crayon and let me just fill out the page. And I was bad at those things. I would freeze. Like when I was in a class like that in, in I don't know if you guys, like when I was in an art class and it was just given like free time to draw or something, it was like paralytic to me. But a song, it's like, okay, there's going to be between three minutes and 10 seconds and four and a half minutes. It's going to have a verse and a chorus, probably maybe a bridge. Um, it has to rhyme. You can use different rhyme schemes, but you should probably find a rhyme scheme. Those things allow me to escape myself into a kind of work. The focus required um, is like my favorite kind of way to spend time. But unlike in my work life, if it turns out not to be incredibly great, but it's just the best I can do in this moment, it's still unbelievably satisfying. So some people don't like the word hobby. You know, Seth likes to talk about hobbies a lot when he's on the show, Godin. But for me, a hobby that I take very seriously has a chance to elevate to become something beyond a hobby. But even if it just stays a hobby, it still has incredible rewards. Did I answer that right? Does that make sense? What I just said, does that feel yeah, true that to the experience? Yeah, 100%. a question one more on songwriting okay um which was just process wise how do you go about writing a song and just to build on that because a lot of the through line obviously of this podcast is creativity how is that similar or different to when you're writing prose or writing a screenplay and in general like what are your rules staring at you know blank page sure. blinking cursor how do you how do you get started wait well can i add one other thing like would you say that you found a structure when writing screenplays that lets you escape into it? Yes, Anna, that's well put. Screenplays, I mean, their similarity is like a screenplay has to have, or the way that I, Dave and I write them, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Something is usually at stake in every scene. There's some kind of conflict. But the, what's the real question here? The real question here is, the real statement behind the question is the blank page is frightening. And the blank page is frightening uh, or can be frightening if you, if you let it be. So the first thing that I do is remind myself that I can, anything I write, I can rewrite later in any form. So when I know that, that allows me to just go wild within the construct of what I'm doing. In, in songwriting, Again, which is a nascent thing for me still, but in songwriting, sometimes it's, I'll say this, I'm always open to ideas showing up and I try to listen closely. And then I try when I listen closely to write that stuff down. I'm talking about listen closely to like the quiet voice inside me, also to what I hear when I'm walking down the street and there are two people talking. Uh, and then when I hear a turn of phrase, and I write that stuff down. I'm, I'm emailing myself and writing in my notes app constantly 
uh, I've been driving with either of you, both of you, and been like, write this line down for me. And that could go in a movie. It could go in a TV show. It can go in um, a song. But Sammy, I want to flip it on you because you've had to write under incredible deadline pressure in your life. You've done um, a lot of speech writing. You know, you were heavily involved in the surrogate speech writing for the Biden campaign. When And I feel like that pressure watching, I watched you write, I know I can't say what speech, I won't, but I watched you write a very high profile speech. And I, I watched you knowing you had this time pressure and I, mom and I would talk about it. Like we actually were kind of blown away by how you approached it. Can you talk about when there's that kind of time pressure? And there's nothing. You have to start from just research or whatever. I mean, how do you manage that? Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting. I mean, when I asked the blank page question, that's because like you, I think creativity, you know, constraints breed creativity for me. So if I have a deadline or if I have a specific mission or a specific kind of thing I'm supposed to write, um, that sort of forces me to just get into it. What's much harder for me is if I have, you know, a blank slate and I need yeah. to figure out something to write in my own time and make that work. When I'm in a deadline, it just goes to instinct. Um, and you sort of in passing just mentioned research, but I think that's the most important thing is like before getting into writing, no matter what I, I research, I outline, even if it's just a couple bullets of what I want to say, um, the main the main thrust, um, so that I, I sort of like have all of that on the page so I'm not staring at the blank page. Um, and I try to, you know, have the creativity come from, you know, it's like a giant, I think of it like a giant ice block of research. And then I try to carve the sculpture instead of starting with nothing and trying to build it from the ground up. So it's a totally different process. But I mean, yeah, the the, the blinking cursor blank page is the most, one of the most scary things in the world. It never gets easier. But how do you, I find like Lawrence Bloxham has talked about, you can get lost in the research. Like I, I want to research until, and then, and then start. Like, don't you ever get worried about what if it's a week later and you're still reading some obscure thing that the principal said seven years ago? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't let that happen. I mean, basically I, I research until I can figure out a structure that roughly makes sense. I mean, I'm like, it's, this is like all bad advice. This isn't, this isn't like necessarily replicable, but the way my process works is once I figure out the lead, I'm sort of like off to the races. So I want to basically figure out the lead and then figure out what the substance is. So I'm not just like, you know, um, spew an empty, empty rhetoric, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, mean, I don't think there's like a, a one size, a one size fits all solution. Um, and, and Anna, cause honestly, you're as all the four of us in the family always say, you're the best writer in the family. We don't say true. that condescendingly or jokingly. We say it amongst ourselves. Your process is different though. I think than mine or your brother's. So when you have to write something, I mean, you torture yourself sometimes for a while, it seems to me, before you start. Well, that's like part of my process is having a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I like am famous for finishing my finals like two weeks in advance, which isn't a brag, even though it sounds like this, just because I drive myself a little bit crazy. But like with creative writing, I, I don't know. I don't normally do like a ton of re research or anything like that, but I, I always... I don't know. Don't you feel like you have to, I will say, it seems to me though that you don't start writing until you feel you have control over the thing you're trying to say. Yeah, that's true. Which is different. Like, don't, am I, like, don't you kind of have to know what you're trying to say? 
or do you not? I mean, what's the real, what's the real of, of, or is it just a feeling you know you want to convey? Well, sometimes it's a feeling. I honestly think a lot of the time I'll just reread things that I love. Like if I'm wanting to write a like creative essay, I normally end up reading like 10 Nora Ephron essays, then having a panic attack that I'm not as good a writer and then writing. That's a great thing to do, not the panic attack part. <laughs> but no, that's a great, I mean, no, that's a great thing to do. That makes sense to me. And I would say the ownership thing is like you, if what you're writing doesn't involve research, what you still want is the thing Tony Gilroy talked about on the podcast. People still tweet at me all the time, which is you want to get to the place where you feel like you're the only person who can tell that story to make yourself feel special enough or like you have enough control over the material to tell that story in a way. You look like you want to say something. No, I was just going to say that I, I feel like a lot of the time the things that I'm writing don't require research. It's not like I'm against research. It's just like yeah. if, I, if I have to write something that has research in it, I do. Don't worry. No one, none of yeah. your professors will think you just made shit up. <laughs> uh, switching gears. Yeah. Um, if you're sad and just go, this is a question from uh, at W-H-L-E-G-G-E-T. If you are sad and just go full on rainy day and Sunday, dog died, cat pissed in the bed, someone stole your truck, the shower leaks, a week late on a deadline, wife left you for the guy who stole your truck, burnt the toast, coffee machine is broke, what's your go-to album? Blood on the Tracks. Great answer. Totally true, don't you think? For me? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Sorry, you answered so quickly. Well, it's just the answer to the question. Completely, completely taken. You well, go to Dylan. What, what go about, to Dylan. I actually, I've noticed that you do go through sort of, I mean, it's also a constant phase, but you do go through phases of like only listening to Dylan. Is there something about his unique genius that inspires your writing? Or is it that like, it gives you something to chase after? Or do you just like the way it sounds? What's your like- All why, of it, man. Why does it always go back to Dylan? All of it. No, you're right. I could go a period of time without listening and then it's just like a total, just a total Dylan fest. I think he's the great artist of our time. I do. I think he's the, the, the greatest artist of my lifetime. And, and I answer blood on the tracks because that's true, but I could also go listen to World Gone Wrong and I could listen to Oh Mercy. Um, there's something about the way that he seems to understand the essential parts of being human. And he expresses it to me both in words and melody. And um, I find myself able to get to a pretty deep place of peace listening to him. I also get inspired. But when I'm writing, I, I was writing a thing the other day and I couldn't quite get it going. And then I realized, oh, this piece, this whole piece needs Pearl Jam. And then I just listened to Pearl Jam while I wrote 30 pages of scenes um, to something. And then Pearl Jam ends up making its way into the script. And so I'll, that is one of the ways also that I deal with the blank page is I love working in music. Often it's Dylan or Lou Reed but sometimes it's going to be Pearl Jam, uh, and Pearl Jam—they're great. Pearl Jam—they're—they're they're not my in my five favorite bands of all time. They're one of the greatest bands of all time. I love them, but this piece felt to me like whatever I was trying to get at had something had something that needed to hit off of what I felt when I listened to Pearl Jam, and I didn't curate a Pearl Jam playlist. 
I might've started with a song or two that I wanted to hear. And then I just like grabbed a bunch of Pearl Jam records, put them in one playlist and hit shuffle. And, um, and it really got me through. And, uh, I, I know when I write more about these particular people, I'll be listening to Pearl Jam a lot over the next year. got a juicy question from big four bob who settles disagreements on writing between you and david levine and the more serious version of that question you're working with a collaborator almost everything you've done yeah solitary man accepted you wrote together how do you find one voice as two people well as you guys know dave and i don't really argue um this is just such a lucky thing to be able to do this with your lifelong closest friend. When we have a creative disagreement, it's really because neither of us has come up with the right idea yet. And we both know that now. And so I would say we just default immediate, almost immediately like, fuck, we don't have it. And kind of like Woodward and Bernstein, like we don't have it yet. And, um, and sometimes we just don't have it yet. We, we don't, fight in a, the traditional way that you might think people who are creating something would, uh, would fight. We, I guess sometimes we've collaborated with like a third party, but not usually. And the best idea wins out. We'll, 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 we'll each take a pass at something. Once in a while, maybe one of us will say to the other one, trust me, I think this is gonna work, here's why. Or let's leave it and like, let's read it in two weeks. But it's not hot like that in the way one might imagine. Um, at Carter Godola, 15, asks advice that you'd give your 20-year-old self. I mean, any advice I'd give my 20-year-old self is the advice that I've given the two of you, uh, which is basically... Uh, journal and meditate. <laughs> um, do morning pages and meditate. Uh, I don't play the game of like advice I could have told myself other than I really wish I would have. Okay, a few things. I'll answer this really directly. One, I would tell myself take Adderall. Deal with ADHD when I was 19 or 20. Uh, I don't always take Adderall. I go years and years and years where I don't take anything for ADHD. But having taken Adderall in my, I think I started taking like one, I, what what year did I write uh, Solitary Man? 2008? 20, 2008? Before that, yeah. Maybe 2008, 2009, 2009. So I was like 40. No, it was before 2008. It was 2007. Okay, so somewhere like around there, but I was born in 66. So I was already like, I had never taken anything for ADHD till I was in my 40s and early 40s. And I had so much pain in school caused by uh, not understanding ADHD and not being able to express myself the right way to teachers about what my problem was doing the work that... I spent years thinking I was lazily not living up to my potential because 
everyone would tell me how smart I was and then how poorly I was doing. And the disconnect was so big. And now that I've been able to make a life for myself that's worked, um, I am not in that kind of pain, I guess, and I could write it off. But the truth is, if you're someone out there who has ADHD, it is an insidious thing. I know there are some people who want to say there's no such thing. There is. The books feel radioactive, meaning when you, you can't open them, they push you away. Uh, you can't sit in the class. Your, your mind is working at a speed that's just different. You can't learn some of the stuff when you're bored. Being bored for an ADHD person is as painful an emotion as you can possibly have. And I was tortured by it. I'm someone who had seven incompletes going into my last semester of college. And that leads to being up all night long. That leads to feeling like a failure. That leads to feeling like a lazy person. That leads to feeling stupid. And the disconnect between knowing, you know, I, I knew some part of me knew I wasn't stupid. I knew I had the uh, uh, certain abilities that were, um, that made clear that I had the ability to synthesize information and um, express myself in a way that people would be interested in. But that didn't mean I could finish a paper or hand it in on time or know how to study or have any skills to study for a test. And it caused so much strife in my life. And, um, and when I was like 42 or something, um, a psych farm doctor said, well, I think you should try this stuff. And I really resisted it. I resisted it probably for, for five years before taking it because I thought, oh, it's a crutch, or, oh, people take Adderall to cheat. And then I started taking it, and all the members of my family were like, God damn, you're better to be around. And uh, my partner, Dave, was like, well, this makes working easier. And I was able to get work done in a way that I just, I would, I had to pull my hair out to get work done before taking um, Adderall. And then um, afterwards, when I took it, it was easier. And then what happened was you learn, or I learned coping mechanisms based on it so that we've made billions for, we're on the season six. And I would say probably I took Adderall a total of five months over the six years of making the show and can write the show perfectly fine without it. Uh, because I understand how to manage my brain chemistry to do it. But I wish I didn't have such a complicated relationship with Adderall, and I wish that I took it all the time. Some part of me still thinks it's cheating. Some part of me still thinks that, um, that it's uh, a hack and that I should be able to do the work without it. But I would be better off if I just took Adderall twice a day, every day, in a safe dose uh, to do the work. It's a great answer. Definitely didn't expect that to go in that direction. Um, but you don't. Uh, but out. you don't disagree with any of that, no, or do you? I kind of did expect it to go there. I thought ADD would come up during this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> made predictions going in. Yeah, and the line was like, on a little piece of paper, and we hadn't said ADD yet. So <laughs> yeah, ADD was like minus one fifty headed into the pod. Okay, uh, uh, completely new topic um, from uh, Day Ha Day. Um, you get a game in Rucker Park. You can pick anyone from any time. Who's on your team and who are you playing? And I'm just going to limit this to uh, it's two on two 
or something, you're picking one person to be on your team and who's one person you want to be playing against. Oh, wow. It's a great Wait, question. Wait, it's Rocker Park and I can fill a squad and you're saying two, just, let's just, just imagine threes. Can we make it threes? Yeah, sure, threes. Well, my squad is me, Earl Monroe, and Bernard King. And I would like Doc to be on the other team. Uh, Dr. J on the other team. So you're not really trying to win. You've set yourself up for failure. Well, I'm already on one of the teams, so there's failure. <laughs> right. We're going to lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but you could put anyone yeah, on the other team. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You could win still. Uh, yeah, but that seems... Oh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. All right. Uh, okay. If you're really asking me what I would really do in a three-on-three, -three, sorry. Let's start over. For real, it would be Kareem and Jordan. And you put anyone you fucking want on the other team, and it doesn't matter because they're losing. You missed a shot at Carmelo by saying he could be on the other team. But oh, you're right. I'm glad you've gotten less petty with, with, with age. Maybe it's the Adderall. Um, new topics to bring up. Um, we could go back to the art, the art one. Um, Bricks and Bullets uh, yes. wrote, All great art contains a gap, a space for the audience to interpret and personalize. Yes. Can you break down an example of when you've done this? It doesn't have to be movie related. Anything can be art if it's done well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the end, I don't want to say what it is, but the end of Solitary Man. In fact, the beginning of Solitary Man. Um, that movie is intentionally full of those things so that you have to supply the answer. But I think you're right. When I think about my favorite band, R.E.M., right? If Dylan is my the great artist of all, my favorite band is, is R.E.M. And The Hold Steady, my favorite sort of modern band. They're giving they're they are leaving you they're giving you a roadmap clues but there's a lot you have to fill in to get there and um and yeah i mean that's in 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 literature too i mean i think in in movies generally and in tv i don't i don't think of i don't consciously think of it i just think that's what the relationship of this stuff is whatever you bring to the art as the viewer is going to inform the art. Perhaps what you're talking about is like, if a viewer, I have an opinion of Bobby Axelrod. I'm never going to tell you what my opinion of Bobby Axelrod is. And I hope that the show isn't specifically going to tell you what Dave and I think of Bobby Axelrod. Bobby Axelrod is going to behave in certain ways. Michael Prince is going to behave in certain ways. Chuck Rhodes and Wendy Rhodes are going to behave in certain ways. And you can decide what that means. that's on a different topic but um Hilden Abby wants to know how did you connect and build such a great relationship with Seth um and like furthermore how do you reach out to mentors or like people that you um want to connect with or surround yourself with but feel a little out of reach and I think the story of how you actually met Seth is instructive for the second part yes um I'm gonna say that I can't guarantee this will um this will work for anybody like and i think i'm not sure seth definitely wants me to tell the story <laughs> but i'm gonna tell it um i love seth one of my dearest friends uh i had become fascinated with his work he re wrote this book the dip that i loved and um i'd heard him interviewed on the dave ramsey show and um 
and I read the dip and loved it. And I wanted to reach out to Seth, but I felt, because I was like, I would love to take, we both went to the same college too. And I felt, it was like, I would love to take this guy to coffee. But I'm often hesitant to uh, just reach out and ask somebody for coffee because I feel like, well, what do I really have to offer them? Or why should I burden them? But I told myself, um, if the right thing came up, I would, it was just in my head. And when, um, when I started doing the Vine series in 2013, an article, I, I thought to myself, oh, an art, Rachel, Rachel Syme wrote an article about the Vine series I was doing in me and the New Yorker online. And when I got that article, I, I thought, okay, I, I did something here that relates to what Seth's work is and that I was, I didn't, I, I just said, did these vines, I did them for free. I turned down um, offers to write the book about them. I didn't go make speaking engagements and try to make money off of it. I just did this thing in the same spirit. Seth does a lot of stuff. And I sent him the New Yorker article and with a letter. And the letter said, uh, if you had 10 minutes, I'd love I'd love to spend 10 minutes with you. Here's who I am. This article does a good job of explaining it. If you think we might have something to talk about, I would love to meet. If you're too busy, I completely understand it. And I just want to say thanks. And he wrote me back. And because so many people reach out to him, he basically said to me, I'm going to be near Grand Central Station. There's a little cafe at Grand Central Station. I'm going to have like 15 minutes before I get on the train if you want to meet me there. And so I did, I met him there and I passed that insanity test uh, after which um, we had a proper meeting and it took, it took a long time, a couple of years before we became real friends. Uh, I think that reaching out to people in a way that doesn't make them think you wanna take from them, that expresses that you understand their work and that it relates somehow to what you do. It's tricky. It's a tricky. It's a tricky thing to do. Um, and there are plenty of letters I've sent that have uh, come back uh, without a response. That have not come back with a response. Well, to flip it on you, uh, if you receive an email, I know you actually talked about this a little bit on the podcast with Mark Andreessen, where you both said you'd like a warm introduction. But absent that what would make you likely to respond to a letter from someone without, you know, who doesn't have any mutual friends with you, um, but they just reached out? What would be the signs that you'd be looking for? Well, I would say that I wasn't, I wasn't someone looking for career advice. I wasn't someone who was saying to Seth, I need a specific kind of help. I was somebody who had a portfolio. I guess part of what I'm trying to say about the New York article and, and about where I was, was like, I'd written a bunch of movies and I had some bit of a portfolio that made it like it might make sense to to meet up. Um, but, I mean, I do this from time. You know, I will respond to people when they write me. And I will... Um, if someone is having a... Someone on their way up in business but are actually doing the thing has a piece of advice that they need... I've been known to sometimes answer it. It's trickier and trickier and harder and harder now because um, you have to be so careful of like 
people suing you for responding to their work. So I can't read anybody's work. And a lot of the time that's what somebody wants. Uh, Twitter is a great, well, I'll say I've made a lot of friends on Twitter. Twitter is an amazing place to get to know somebody because in a public way, I don't do DMs on Twitter, but in a public way, I can see if I, I can see what you do up there. I can see how you respond. Uh, and there have definitely been people on Twitter who are not in the business or not far along who've found a way to make me notice that they're not crazy and they have something to contribute and I will interact and then maybe get to know them. A few, a few quick uh, filmmaking ones, uh, just cause you get a bunch of these and I do feel like there's a lot of other topics often covered on the pod, but people do have questions about this. Um, one is, do you have any tips for screenwriters in terms of sharpening their dialogue skills? Yes. I mean, it's so, one thing I'm going to say is so just like, just watch, watch David Mamet movies and Tony Gilroy movies and Nicole Holof Center movies and Spike Lee movies and Quentin Tarantino movies. And then read the scripts, watch the movies again. And um, I mean, that's what I did. And then listen closely to people and listen closely to the arguments they have. When you're having an argument, I mean, be in it, but afterwards, think about how that argument progressed. Maybe go write it down how it progressed. Um, it's a lot of listening and a lot of writing and a lot of understanding rhythm. Like, I think that meter and thinking about meter and noticing meter, and that's what the gift, so when people say, read David Mamet or watch David Mamet. I said this the other day, somebody asked me this question, a, um, a really great writer online asked me a question about Mamet. And I, I said, I went to see Speed the Plow, um, a girl that I was dating in college, her parents had tickets to Speed the Plow on Broadway. I was not thinking about becoming a writer at that time. We went to see it. It was the original cast, Joe Montana, Ron Silver, Madonna, like the first week it was open. And when I heard that sound that that play made, I was transfixed. I wanted to make that sound. In some way, I spent the rest of my life trying to make that sound, the sound of Speed the Plow. And what Harold Bloom, the great literary critic and writer talked about was when you have an influence that's that great, you as an artist, if you're really serious about it and obsessed in trying to make that sound will hit off it wrongly, what he calls misreading it. And out of that will create your own sound. And I, I think that, I think you hear David Mamet in our work, but you also hear something that's distinctly David and mine. And, and for my side of that, a lot of that has to do with trying to recreate the conversations that I heard on that stage that night. One more quick film question before we wrap this up um, from Polly Golightly. Film endings are tough, so few end in a satisfying way, but when they do, it's magic. What are your thoughts about how to end a film? The ending of the film is in the beginning of the film. Um, and if you have a problem at the end, it's because you don't know what you've been writing about. But if you can figure out what the conflict at the beginning is of the piece, uh, 
you can figure out how the piece should end. I mean, it took me, you know, I was blocked writing Solitary Man for like four years. And because there was something that I thought the thing was about in the beginning, and it turned out not to be about that. And once I realized that, suddenly I understood that last image. And once I understood that last image, I understood how it connected to the beginning and I was able to write to it. I have one, someone sent something in after we collated these questions. Someone with a very tough, tough New York City job and they asked to be anonymous. It's not Bill de Blasio. And uh, they, this person does have a tough New York City job, do they not? Yes. Asking. Yes. And so the question is, they say that I, Brian, I've spoken about not allowing anger, pettier manifestations of anger to fuel creative work. And this person saying, saying to me, Brian, the idea speaks to me, but what if one's anger is in service of real creativity and the creativity serves as a way of productively smoothing out that anger? Basically, can one channel their anger into productive creative pursuits or attempts at doing so ultimately fleeting and unsatisfying? Well, I would say this. Dave and I have a different answer to this question. It's a personal, for me, I was dr driven by anger for a long time. But it, when I say it stopped, when I say it stopped burning clean, what I mean by that is the residual effects of it, I would do that work, but it didn't release the anger anymore. Like writing something out of the urge to say, fuck you to somebody, or fuck you for thinking I wouldn't be successful, or fuck you for thinking I wasn't talented. In the end, you're just still left with fuck you. So I, instead, I try to just divorce myself from all that and do the work so that at the end of it, I'm freer. But there's no doubt that when you're a younger person, that anger does propel you. And I'd be lying if I said I never tapped into it. I mean, my kids know that I had a couple of real creative professional disappointments right before Billions. And I would be lying if I didn't say that each step of the way as we move forward, there wasn't a little part of me that was aware that one of the people who I felt like wasn't so nice to me was trying to do something similar. And I definitely, part of me enjoyed um, maybe doing slightly better, but I would say that became unhealthy. Meaning I had to then, so maybe that propelled me a little bit the first year of the show. But then I had to consciously divorce myself from caring about that. And, and leave the, the anger and breathe because the, who you are away from the work matters even more. And I wanted to be a person who wasn't being fueled by rage. Do you ever put the anger into a character? Like give them the anger you're feeling. Yeah, I mean, I write a lot of angry characters. That's what I'm asking. Like, is, is that where the it's how I understand it? Well, sure, it's how I understand it, probably. Um, but I don't feel it. I'll say, like, when I'm writing Axe or Chuck mad, you don't feel rage. I understand their position, and I'll say also that part's not conscious. This I I rarely get to talk about this part. That's not conscious, right? You guys know. You're in you're, a flow state or whatever. Yeah, you're just yeah. trying to be in a flow state where you're just kind of like making your, your bare, I mean, I've said this before, but it is true. You're hyper-present, but barely tethered to the earth and floating above. And that thing, I don't, I can't really consciously answer where that stuff comes from. That's the part that's the magic of all the rest of the work. Is there one last question or we did it? 
Yeah, sure. King Nugos asks, <laughs> screw all this industry stuff. You ever trip your balls off? If so, <laughs> give us a couple of highlights. Uh, yeah, I had one really bad mushroom trip. And Wait, really? I did, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know this. <laughs> I, um, Sam knows. I had one. Uh, it was such a cliched mushroom trip. Uh, I was a sophomore and having a terrible, terrible year. And I took mushrooms. And let's just say the night ended with me weeping into Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. <laughs> How can you never tell me that? Oh my God. I literally was sitting with the book in my lap. That's the archetype of a bad. That's the bit of literally. It's a great story of David Levine saving me, though. I'm going to say it. I've never told it before, ever in public, because you were too young, boo. But, um, uh, so I would never tell a story about this because you were too young and I wouldn't want it out in the public, but it was I, basically earlier in the day, I said to Dave, someone gave me mushrooms. Do you want to do mushrooms? And he was like, no, I'm not doing mushrooms. And he was at school across the city from where I was at school. We were in Boston. And, um, but then I took the mushrooms and the people I took them with left and I was left alone. And I started turning really bad. And I'd only done mushrooms one other time and it was fine. But this time I took a lot and I oh, was so alone. Oh, so you've done them twice. Yeah. You said it once at the beginning of this? No, one bad trip. <laughs> no, you said I've only done mushrooms once. One bad trip. No, I, I said okay, one bad trip. We'll, we'll roll back the tape. Yeah, we can, you can ask me any drug questions you want after this. I'm happy to have the conversation. It's a very simple conversation, the drug conversation. Um, because there's very been very, very little in terms of drugs. But this is true. So the trip starts to be so bad and I call, I just get to the phone and I call Dave and he happens to be in his dorm room and I'm like, I took mushrooms and I'm losing my mind and I don't know what to do. <laughs> and he's, he had early, earlier in the day said to me that he had a final paper due that he had to start that was over 10 pages long for some history class or something. Oh God. And I'm like, Okay. And he goes, I'll be right there. So I'm just sitting in my room on the floor, you know, in hell, when suddenly I hear Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth playing. Like one of my favorite songs of all time. David, come into the room, found the record player, put on the perfect record. <laughs> put on the perfect it's record. Like downright romantic. Calm me down. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. Days of seven. To calm me down. So he calms me down. And then he's like, come on, let's go. I go, where are we going? He goes, well, I'm taking you back to my school. And we get, and it's like, what's going on? And I tell him whatever I'm feeling. He goes, all right, let me try to cheer you up. So the first thing he does is out behind the gym at the school. Dave's, Dave has certain skills that are incredible. One of which is, you know, he's an amazing driver. And, uh, and he had this incredibly fast stick shift car and used incredibly fast stick shift car. And he took me and we went behind the gym at my college where there was this huge, huge dirt field. And he just did donuts in the car to try... <laughs> and uh, change my state. So he whipped a bunch of donuts in the car, just whipping around donuts, which got me laughing and changed where I was. And we drove back to his school and he's like, listen, dude, I have to, um, I have to do this paper. So he sat me down in the hallway and basically, basically, he didn't put a sign on me, but he was basically like, you know, guy tripping balls, careful. And he brought his typewriter out into the common room and he typewriter. gave me Siddhartha, which he knew was a book I loved. And I just sat there reading Siddhartha and crying as he wrote his paper and he would check on me every few minutes. And then, and then 
Around four in the morning, he got a frantic phone call from a friend of his who's had a friend up who got lost in Boston out of a bar. And we had to go find this person. No cell phones. And the two of us had to go through Boston with this girl and me and Dave trying to find the missing person who was lost on this one street. This is like the worst remake of Nick and Nora. Yes. And we, it was like Nick and Nora's reminded me so much of this <laughs> night when I saw it. And we ended up finding the girl and bringing her back to safety. And then that's when I sat. Then Dave was like, okay, dude, now I truly have to finish the paper. So he finally Poor sits Dave. down and writes his paper. I end the night. I do end of the night. I, the Sid Arthur was covered in my tears. and uh, But then I was okay. And he drove me back. And I got up the next day and I was fine. And then the best part is he got an A fucking plus on the paper. What? A plus. David Levine, everybody. That's fucking awesome. A plus on the paper. It was an amazing thing. And all that is true. And you can ask your uncle and he will tell you that it's all true. Well, I guess from here we'll we'll go call Dave. Um, All right, everybody. So that's not where I expected this to go, but they asked. (laughs) But thank you to whoever asked that question. I've learned a lot more about my dad. Yeah, King Nugo's props. Your your older brother did know that story. He raised two goody two-shoes. I don't know how that happened. Because I did mushrooms twice in my life? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I... I'm cool. I smoked some pot and I did mushrooms. That's the extent of the drugs. We've done Uh it now. Sure. No, he knows. (laughs) No, I trust you. I'm just... just I can't wait for Thanksgiving 10 years from now when we get the blow stories. <laughs> no coke. No cocaine. Lots of reasons. No cocaine. Very scary to me. All right, everybody. Uh, if um, you want more drug stories, we can make that a whole different podcast. Uh, you can uh, give me your thoughts on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. Sammy is, are you Sammy Koppelman on Twitter? Yes. One word. What are you, Anna? Anna Koppelman on Twitter. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.